If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 61. Carter has been so gracious and kind to invite me uh, to be with you at this capacity for the next two weeks. And so I wanted to take advantage of that and have a series of conversations, really, I guess, just two conversations with you about dreams. You know, one of the most fascinating things about human beings, whether you're a religious person or you're not a religious person, one of the most fascinating things about humans is our ability to dream. Now, I'm not talking about when you're going to sleep. That's its own phenomenon in and of itself. I mean your waking dreams. You, you know what I mean. The ideas that you have of your life, what it should look like, what it needs to look like. You know, it begins when we're little, when we're young. Kids have dreams. They want to be a part of a loving family with lots of toys and those things. And then eventually we mature a bit and we decide, that, hey, we want our own family. We dream of having that perfect spouse, those perfect children who adore us and love us. And then our dream evolves even further as we decide which career path we want to take. Then we start thinking about dream homes and dream location. We have all of these dreams all of the time. And, but we don't just have dreams as individuals. We also have dreams as communities or even as churches. You know what I mean? Churches dream about making impacts in their community. They dream about being a part of a community that loves each other, that cares about each other. They dream about doing great things for Jesus himself. And these are wonderful. And these are beautiful. And guess what? Cornerstone is no exception to, the, to the, the dreams, to having dreams. In fact, our own historian, Gene Cover, has written an excellent history of this congregation. And in the, at the very end, Gene does a great job of showcasing what Cornerstone's dream is. So if I may, let me read what Gene has, has written. He says, although we began our history 30 years ago, which I think now it's around 40-ish. Is that correct? There you go. The historian himself has spoken. <laughs> Even though we begun this history over 40 years ago and the church has had its trials, it's clear that God has been at work among us all, among us all along. He says, There have been times when conventional wisdom would have closed the church. But our God is not concerned with worldly wisdom. And then Gene says something fantastic here. And for me, this is the dream statement. Gene says our challenge, and if I may, substitute the word challenge for dream. Our dream has been to determine what God is doing and to join him in doing it. Isn't that wonderful? That's the dream, collectively, that defines who Cornerstone is. And it's a beautiful dream. It's a wonderful dream. Who doesn't want to be a part of a dream like that? It's wonderful. It's fantastic. But there's also a dark side to dreams. Do you know where I'm going? Every dream whether it's small and or great, has a cost. There's a price tag that's attached to every single dream. And in fact, the greater the dream, the more impactful the dream, the higher the cost. 
So the question becomes, well, what happens to our dreams when we can't pay the cost? We know this as individuals with our own dreams. If we just take inventory of things that we've dreamed about, life, life that we wanted to have, we know things like, like, yes, being married is a wonderful dream. It also happens to cost a great deal. Having, ch having children is a wonderful dream. It costs. Dream houses cost. Dream careers cost. All of these things cost, and the reality is the same is true of our community dreams, of our church dreams. Impacting a community for Christ cost a congregation a great deal. Interacting with people and loving your neighbor the way that God has commanded that we do so cost a great deal. There's no guarantee that that love will ever be reciprocated back. That itself is costly. Church's dreams cost. So what happens when a church has a dream and they're not able, able to pay the cost? You and I both know what happens. Because it happens in our individual life and it also happens in the life of a church. That dream, even though it's so beautiful and so wonderful, begins to shatter before us. And it shatters into a million different pieces because the cost couldn't be paid. Now, over the past several weeks, as some of you know, some of you, uh, I think, some of you have been so gracious in just having this conversation with me and just dreaming about Cornerstone and your history with it and your affection for it. And it's just been such a wonderful time to hear from most of your perspective of, of, about the state of Cornerstone's dream, if I may put it like that. And while the conversations have been so exciting, and I feel I, I'm, in this, I'm in this very privileged position where I get to hear your stories and your thoughts and your, your emotions and things like that, it's just so wonderful. But in the midst of it, there's been a common theme. And it's not maybe the most joyous of themes, but it is a real theme. And there seems to be this sense that as a congregation, we're worried about our future. We're worried about the state of this wonderful dream, as Gene has articulated, that's been lasting for over 40 years. And there have been a lot of contributing factors to this. Some of them that could be controlled, some that could not be controlled. There's been several hardships that have threatened this wonderful, beautiful dream. Financial hardships. Very frank and hard political conversations. Strained friendships. And then the obvious observation of a declining congregation. All of these are contributors to this feeling that something is not right or that something, that this dream that we have may be shattering before our feet. Now, there's lots of different ways, I think, that congregations in general respond to those different hardships. I think for some congregations, they get super theological, right? Super theological. Well, the church has always suffered, and we're no different, then we're going to suffer along with the rest of them. Or we can become combative. Well, it's not our fault. We're the faithful ones. We're here on Sunday. We come to Bible study, Sunday school, we'll play in the band. We do all of these great things. It's the culture. It's their fault. It's their problem. So when they want to get their act together, we'll be here waiting for them. And then there's the real challenge of just changing communities. Like, how does a congregation that's 40-plus years old relate to a new generation and new demographics that are even in our, in, in our region right here or in our area right in our own backyard? How do we do that? It's complicated. 
It's messy. It's scary. Because it means adapting. And adapting means losing. And losing means change. And those things are hard. But here's the real question, I think, that we have to ask. Because if it's true that that dream that we have is shattering, is there any way to find hope? Where is the hope? How do we find it? Is it available to us? You know, Tom Lott has been feeding me for the past six years at least once a week over, you know, various restaurants. I'm so thankful for it. So is my, so is my stomach and my soul. Yeah, it's just so happy. Nevertheless, uh, I want you to know that as we have this conversation, like, this is something that is deeply personal to me. One, because I care a great deal about you guys. And I just think that you're just, just oozing with potential and just, just so, so wonderful. And you have been such a part of the formation of my own life. I just love you guys so much. But the other part, the other part about this conversation that I, I, I want you to know is that I, I, am, I am not an expert in these things. I, I am not an expert in these things. I am with you processing through these things. But I think that there's a deep sense of hope that can be extracted from the situation as it is. And when I was in the midst of having my own church crisis, my own life crisis, my own faith crisis, I remember Tom pulled out this particular passage of Scripture, and we looked at it together. And it's been, it has been experientially just revitalizing to my own soul. So that's all I want to do this, this morning, just share this with you, with some thoughts. Is that fair? Here's the question I want us to unpack. Where is hope found when our dreams are shattered? Some of you may be sitting here and saying, like, I've never been to this church before in my life. I don't know anything about this church. I'm just here. Well, listen, everything we're going to say today can be applied both to our individual dreams and also our church dreams. So I believe God has something for us all here today. Let's look at Psalm 61. David writes this. He says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. And you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is good and it's true. And Father, I thank you so much for this congregation. Lord, I know that, that times have not been easy. There have been seasons of difficulty. But Father, you have been faithful for 40 years to Cornerstone. And for no other reason, Lord, we just want to praise you for that. We want to thank you for that. But Father, I believe that you have a dream for Cornerstone. That you, that you, you have a new assignment that you're giving this wonderful congregation to where they can know you better, know you more, and they can serve the community around them in a meaningful, impactful way. So, Father, as we have this potentially, I don't know, difficult conversation, frank conversation, Lord, would you just infuse my words with grace? 
would you allow the, the posture of my heart to be one of just humility? I am not the expert. I'm not the hero. You're the hero. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. David, although king, was not immune to dreams being smashed to pieces. In fact, in the psalm in particular, David is undergoing his dream of being the king that ushers in peace and prosperity for God's people. Uh, that didn't happen. It gets smashed to pieces. Spoiler alert, David messes up royally pretty bad to where this dream he has for himself is just shattered. So he's on the run now. He's, he's trying to preserve his own life, and everything is just unraveling before him, and the psalm is him crying out, God, help me. So it really is a wonderful, wonderful, not just illustration, but it's marching orders for when we find ourselves in situations where our dreams are broken. Now let's start with something that we, we all know and we all can agree on. All churches have dreams, like individuals. All churches have dreams. David himself, he's an individual, but he has a dream, and he is so excited about participating and bringing in, ushering in this kingdom of God before his people so that they experience societal blessing, so that they see the righteousness and beauty of God, and they align with him, and they live life the way that they're designed to live. And what a wonderful dream. Is that not a wonderful thing to want? Is that a not wonderful thing to live for? Is that not a wonderful thing to commit your life to? That's wonderful. However, all dreams come with a price tag. And David is not able to pay the cost for this dream to come to fruition, for it to materialize. Because for David to usher in a reign of righteousness and peace and prosperity for his people, he has to embody those things himself. And again, spoiler alert, he don't. And so it ends really poorly for him. It ends really bad. So then we come to verse 1, and we hear David trying to go to God with his pain and frustration. Listen, listen, to the, listen to the tone in which he speaks. Hear me. Hear my cry. Listen to my prayer. I'm faint. My heart is faint. He is not in this joyous position. He's in a position of disorientation and chaos because everything he thought was going to be his and for him to experience in life has been shattered. It's gone. And now he's wallowing in his own pain and frustration. Scholars suspect that David, we don't know exactly when he writes this psalm, but probably was when his own son was chasing him to kill him to usurp his throne, right? Again, Things don't, aren't turning out great for David in his life. Yet, even in his shattered dreams, he still goes to God and he asks God for some kind of hope. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's, that's what he's drawn to. Like, just imagine for a second. Just imagine how the scene unfolds. David's in the wilderness. He has his mighty men, maybe a few, you know, people here and there. But he just is not even the same person prior to from him experiencing the shattered dream. David, who's the king, who always stood very tall, in this scene is not standing tall. In fact, he probably is barely able to stand on at all. His eyes were once so zealous and young and so, so excited about tackling this dream, now they're just red as warm tears are falling down his face. Everything he wanted, everything he wanted to be and provide, has all ruined, has all become ruined. It's all shattered before him. And he can't do anything about it. And it seems like as the passage opens, he's trying to go to God, but there's this sense in which he can't, 
He can't hear God speaking back to him because there's another voice in his head screaming so loud that he can't hear anything else. And that voice is his own. And what's the voice saying? You know what it's saying because you've heard the same voice. When either your individual dreams have shattered or you've been a part of a church community where those dreams have shattered, you've heard the same voice. And the voice goes like this, you're a failure. You have failed. And that's all I can hear. There's nothing else. You're a failure. You had a dream, your dream was good, but you couldn't pay the cost. And now you must suffer to walk through the shards of what, what could have been. David's devastated. And can I say something that is hard to say? Or can I ask something that's hard to say? Cornerstone's dream, this dream which, which began in a living room in Spring Branch in 1981, over 40 years, who's been passed down from faithful servant to faithful servant until, until, until present time. But yet now it feels like that may be crumbling before us. It may feel like it's shattering, like it's not going anywhere. And I just wonder, I just wonder, is that because the dream that Cornerstone had of becoming what God wanted them to be had a big price tag attached to it. And the price hasn't been paid. I just wonder. Now, I'm not looking at anyone. I'm not, I'm not, this is not, this is not blame, this is not blame session. This is not anything like that. I'm just asking the question. Because here's the thing that we're learning from David early on in this scripture. That David knows he messed up. And in one sense, the mess up is not as important as David's willingness to own his mess up. Do you understand? You see what I'm saying? What David is doing is he is, he is owning. Why? Because when we own the fact that we aren't able to pay, either with spiritual capital or relational capital, whatever the price of this dream is, and we're not able to pay it, what's more important than looking at specifics, I think, is being able to own the fact that we just couldn't do it. Just owning it. Because by owning it, something begins to emerge, as we're going to see here with David. And what begins to emerge is a new hope. It's a new hope. All churches. Listen, this is, in some sense, this, 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 is, this transcends Cornerstone. All churches, all, all churches, will experience their dream being shattered. It's the nature of the beast, because our dreams always cost something, and we're not always able to pay. So I know what some of you are thinking. What's the point of dreaming at all? Let's just be pragmatic. Let's just meet, shake hands. You know, let's not think about what, what God is doing or what he's calling us to do. Let's, let's just forget all that stuff. Now, listen, <laughs> you know, asking a human not to dream is like asking a human not to be thirsty. We're wired to dream. We're wired to think big. We're wired to think about what being faithful in our cultural moment looks like. We're wired for that. So I don't know if suppressing it does, does, uh, does any good. So then the question is, well, why? Why are dreams so important to us? And I think one of the reasons why, if not the biggest reason, is this. Because dreams 
again, for your individual dreams or a church dream, gives us a sense of identity. Our dreams define us. Like, and, 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 excuse me, our, our, our dreams are connected to how we define ourselves. It's very, they're very, very important. In one sense, dreams are like name tags. They show the world around us where we want to go, who we think we are. They, show, they, they give everyone a Reader's Digest version of who we want to be. This is why, it's, and it's so baked into who we are as people. You know, that's why as you, when you were a child, or if you're around a child, one of the frequent questions you ask them is what? What do you want to be when you grow up? Now, at the face value, that looks like a vocational question. But ultimately, it's not. Because when you ask a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're ultimately asking them, the question underneath is, who do you think you are? Who do you want to be? Or, what's your dream? And the, uh, adults, we do the same thing. You know, we, 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 we shake hands and then we give pleasantries with someone that we just met. But then eventually, what question comes up? What do you do? Who are you? What's your dream? These are core identity questions. Why is David so crushed? Why are we so crushed when our dreams seem to shatter or stall? Why? Because our dreams are connected to our identity. They're connected to who we think we are and what we are to do. They're connected to who we think, what what our purpose is. They're deeply and utterly connected to who we are at our core So much so that when our dreams materialize, we feel safe and secure and the world is right. But when our dreams are crushed, we are crushed. When our dreams are shattered, we are shattered. When our dreams are lost, we feel lost. Because dreams ultimately give us a sense of identity. What David is learning, though, is as great as dreams are, it's not a strong enough identity. So how does he respond at the end of the second part of verse 2? Look what he says. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Or very literally, that rock right there, that's where I have to go. I've got to go there. Now David is in the wilderness and he's, he's upset with the shattered dream, but then he gets this glimpse of hope. His eyes seem to lift from his situation and he sees this cleft in the rock. And in a literal sense, he's looking at it saying, oh, that's what I need to hide from the people that are trying to come kill me, right? That will provide me safety. I need that. But there's also this metaphorical sense where David is realizing the hopes and dreams I had for myself, they have been shattered to pieces. And I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But maybe there's a source of security outside of me that can give me what I really want, that can't be dashed to pieces that can't be shattered, that can only provide me purpose, that can ultimately be stronger than even my own dreams. David sees this, and hope begins to emerge. Hope begins to come forth. And notice again, it's not outside of his shattered dream. The hope begins to come in his shattered dream. Now listen, I know what some of you are thinking. (laughs) Listen, man bun. That's great. That is wonderful for David. That's wonderful. But while you've been out, you know, frolicking about and, you know, taking people to no label and, you know, the church planner thing, you know, while you've been doing all that, we have been struggling. We've had some very real conflicts. We've had real tension. We have been going through a very hard season. 
and that's valid. And I want you to know, I, I, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like, especially those of you who have been so invested in this community for so many years, just to look at the current state. I don't know what that's like, and I don't presume to know that, what it's like. But can I tell you three things that I think you need to hear? Three things that I think you need to hear is number one, that your grief is valid. Your grief is valid. Your frustration is valid. And you are not alone. Like, I see you. I see you. Your grief is valid. But not only is your grief valid, and whether you can believe this now or not, I need you to hear me. You are not your shattered dreams. Shattered dreams are ugly, and they're in our face, and they're reminders. They're always, it, it prompts our inner voice inside telling us of what a failure we are, what a mess up we are. And it brings all this shame, and I'm telling you, it's a lie. You are not your shattered dreams. Cornerstone's legacy will not be defined by any particular season. It's a collective story that God is writing, and we get to be a part of it. You get to be a part of it. You are not, you are not your broken dreams at all. And can I tell you one more thing? And this is, this, this is something that I just had the hardest time believing. But it's one of those things that I, I know it's true, and I'm just waiting for my heart to catch up with my brain type deal. But let me submit it to you as well. There is no one, no one, no one, no one. That baby's not bothering me at all. I, I love it. There is no one more sad when dreams are broken than God himself. No one. And in the craziest of ways, the blessing, if I can put it that way, the blessing of broken dreams, shattered dreams, is that we get to experience God in a way in which we wouldn't know about him if we didn't experience a shattered dream. He comes to us, and he makes his presence available to us in the shattered dream. He doesn't wait for us to get it all back together. No, no, no. He comes and meets us there. When I was growing up, I had a plethora of problems, right? Like, you know, just relational problems and sports problems. And I had all these dreams and hopes, you know, for my future and how things would turn out. And it just felt like, especially during a couple, several seasons, it just felt like nothing was going the way in which I was planning for it to go. So my, what I did was I talked to my dad about it. And he was wonderful. My dad was a wonderful man. He had a routine. He'd get up every morning, like, you know, three or four, something ridiculous, right? Drink coffee till like seven, you know, then, then did, you know, did all the things. So I knew from, you know, three to seven, essentially, there was a window where I could go sit with him and drink coffee and tell him about all my problems, and that's what I did. And what was so interesting is that he would always make himself available, very present. Sometimes he'd put his hand on my shoulder. Sometimes he'd give me a big hug. You know, whatever was appropriate in the moment. But do you know what he never did? He never fixed my problems the way I thought he should. But you know what I've learned looking back? He always fixed my problems the way I needed them to be fixed. Now listen, my dad's awesome. He is. He's fantastic. At the same time, my dad's a sinner. 
But he's imperfect. He's fragile. He's fallible. Yet, in the midst of my broken dreams, his presence was so overwhelmingly powerful that I was able to take another step, where I was able to be courageous, where I still felt, I still felt like there was hope, even though this thing was crumbling before me. Now listen, if a sinful human being can do that for another human being, how much more can God being present with us in the midst of a shattered dream change everything? Emerge a hope that nothing can compare to. Your grief is valid. You're not alone. And God is very, very willing to be present with us in these moments because you're not defined by your shattered dreams. You're not defined by your past mistakes. We're defined by the way God has defined us and designed us, which is why shattered dreams, ultimately, as hard as they are, they can lead to a renewed hope in a very profound way. Look at verse 3 with me. David begins to change his tune after he notices there's a security that is stronger than his dreams. And as he starts to fixate on that, it changes everything. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows, and you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. What's so interesting is as David is wallowing, God meets him. And David's first reaction is not to rebuild his dream. It's actually, he gets historical. He doesn't think about the future at all. He goes back to the past. You've always been there for me. You've always been supporting me. Even when I was doing my dumb stuff, you still were there loving and caring for me. That's who I am. I'm not my broken dreams. As he says in verse 3, as it were, him and, him and God are sitting on the back porch drinking coffee. And God is not fixing him the way that maybe, maybe he wanted to be fixed, but he's fixing him the way he needs to be fixed. Which is why in verse 4 it's so different, because he realizes, no, my staying power, my identity is not in my dreams. My identity is in the God who has formed me and cares for me and provides for me. I thought, I could almost hear David thinking, maybe because we've all had these thoughts. Like, I thought, I thought my dreams were going to bring me security and happiness and, and hopefulness. But I think what David is realizing and what we, need to, we, would, we would do well to learn from is he's realizing in this silent company of God that our dreams are nothing, nothing compared to the dreams that God has for us. Our dreams are nothing compared to the dreams that God has for us. See, David thought he was going to play a very specific role in establishing this kingdom of God. And God says, no, no, I, got different, I have a different plan for you. Dreams are powerful because they're connected to our identity. They're connected. They tell the world who we are, who we want to be, where we want to go. But what David is realizing, and I think what we have to realize as well, too, is that our dreams... Our dreams are nothing compared to the dreams that God has for us. So let's get back to our original question. Where's the hope? Where's the hope for us right now today? And here it is. Hope is found in the God who takes our shattered dreams and he replaces them with his dreams for us. That's where hope is found. Watch how David concludes the scene in verse 6. 
Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform vows, my vows day after day. Now notice, David is learning. And I want to highlight bold all the things to the word learning. Because I don't think this is an overnight, oh, I'm so much better now. Right? No, that, that, that's, not what, that's not what's happening. No, David is learning. He's teaching his heart new habits. He's training his brain and his heart how to respond appropriately, even if his feelings haven't caught up with him yet. But he begins to say, hey, I'm attaching myself to something more secure than my dreams. I'm attaching myself. I thought I was going to function a certain way, but what I'm learning is what God has for me is immensely better than what I thought I had for myself. And in that, he finds hope. He finds solace. He finds, he finds purpose and value. And at the end of the day, when we think about it, David wanted to be the king who brings in the reign of righteousness. Whose dream is this really? I mean, ultimately, this dream's origins is in who? God himself. This is God's dream. David thought he would play a certain role in it. He winds up not playing. But here's the crazy thing about God's dreams for us being so much better than our dreams for ourselves. Because thousands of years from this moment in time, another king will rise up. Another king will rise up with David's own blood coursing through his veins. A king with the same dream of establishing God's rule on earth. A king whose desire to see people flourish in peace and prosperity and righteousness, just as passionate for those things. A king that faced this, is faced with the same trials that David is, but instead of falling into sinful traps, he righteously is victorious over all of them. Yet in the most ironic turn of events in history, his own people reject him. They cast him aside, they say he's a lunatic, he's a liar, and they sell him over to the authorities to be killed. They hurl insults at him, they poke him, they prod him, they beat him, they mock him, and eventually they kill him. And he willingly goes through all of it. And the question is why? Because remember, every dream has a cost. Even God's dreams. God wants to reign in, wants to reign righteousness and peace for all his people, which is a big dream, which means what? It has a big cost. This one in particular costs the life of his own son. But he does this. He does this. So if David has any reason to trust that God has something better than David could construe himself, we have far more reason because we're living on this side. So what do we do with all, all of this? Dreams are so wonderful and they're so beautiful. And listen, my friends, listen to me. I want you to hear me. I know that it feels like the more difficult times have been coming more persistently. I know that. And I know that because I hear you. I hear the way that you talk. You, I hear the stories. I'm listening. I know that times have been more difficult. And I know it's confusing. We preach the gospel. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Like, we, we, we do all the things right. It just, it just seems as if there's just these struggles that are insurmountable and keep occurring over and over and over again. And the truth is, I don't know why. I don't know. 
But here's what I do know. It's not because God is angry with you. And it's not because he's punishing you. That's not it. That is not why. The dream is stalling or even shattering, not not because he's angry or frustrated, but because he has something better in store. It's through the shattering of dreams that God's dreams emerge. And in that, even if we can't see it fully, in that there's so much hope. Here's what I want to do. I want to close with a time of prayer. Shorter. I'm, I'm looking at the clock. Don't worry. A shorter time of prayer. Where I'm going to invite you to consider a couple things. So here's what I want you to do. Let's, let's, the cat's away, right? So let's, let, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to find a posture that you're comfortable with, okay? We're going to have a few moments. We're going to have a few minutes of prayer, but I want you to find a, a posture that you're comfortable with. So if like, if you're, you know, I've been talking a long time. If you want to stand up, that's fine. Don't, you know, disrupt other people. But if you want to walk around in the atrium or whatever, that's fine. Whatever, whatever you have to do to have a meaningful time of prayer with God. And if, that, if that's weird to you, just sit there. That's fine. No, it's no big deal at all, right? But I want you to be comfortable, okay? I'm going to ask us three different things, and I just want you to have a conversation with God. Fair? Deal? Here's the first thing I want us to think about, okay? When we have this conversation, when we think about Cornerstone's dream, we think about the season, the season that we're in in particular, where's your heart? Are you angry? frustrated maybe you're really excited about the season that we're in but wherever your heart is however you feel would you just go to God right now and just tell him just just silently in your own heart your own mind would you just be honest with God and tell him if you're frustrated tell him God I'm frustrated if you're confused tell him I'm God I'm confused I don't understand but would you just first and foremost just be honest with him second one is a little bit more difficult. But I think we have to go here. Because I think ownership only, ownership is the vehicle to experiencing new hope. So let's do it together, okay? Re- remembering that hope comes through owning what you can own. When you think about the current state of Cornerstone's dream, what factors to us getting this point, or what, what can you own? In what, in, what ways, in what ways maybe have your thoughts and your actions and maybe even beliefs, and in, what, in what ways have those things prevented Cornerstone's dream from materializing? Which aspects can you own? And let's ask God to forgive us of those things. Lastly, listen to me, friends, because of Christ, because of Christ, you are not defined by your past sins. You're not. I'm not. Because of Christ. Because of his ongoing righteousness, God looks at you the same way that he looks at his son, well-pleased. 
And we'll be just, let's just spend some time just thanking him for that. Just thanking him for being so good to us. Father, I'm so thankful for this congregation. Thankful for all of the people that you have used to raise up and establish this faithful, these past faithful 40 years. Father, the church belongs to no one except Christ himself. So Lord, we are asking that you would be gracious and that you would give us hope. Not in 10 years from now when things may be going better or or even recalling back in a time in history in which, which, which things were better. But Father, right now in the present, would you just give us hope? Would you give us a sense that your presence is near? And would you give us the faith to trust that, Lord, while you may not be fixing us the way that we want to be fixed, but you are doing something new. And that is so incredibly exciting. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.